Welcome to From Duck Till Dark, Outside the Marvel Studios. An audio celebration of the films based on Marvel Comics characters released before and during the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Enough said. Alright, let's go ahead and start th- start this up. How's everyone doing today? Awesome, awesome. Thank you guys so much for being here. This is, uh, is going to be a really fun, uh, fun chat with uh, basically just giving you a what I like to call my dissertation that I've been working on for the past two years. <laughs> and this has been something that, uh, that, that I was hoping to present over at Archon actually in 2020 and then 2020 happened. And so, uh, so all that wound up being put on hold and I finally had an opportunity to talk about this here. So uh, first of all, are you guys enjoying Fan Expo so far? Excellent, excellent, so glad to hear that. Uh, So basically what this is, it's a look back at the saga that was the X-Men film franchise from 2000 to 2019. And this was basically, um, a lot of people kind of look at the Marvel Cinematic Universe and say that's what comic books are really like and I tend to disagree. I think that that's what comic books should be like, but because of the different starts and stops and continuity because of the different twists and turns that have happened throughout the years the different people that have been involved in it and um how the how the characters seem to look the same from the 60s 70s and 80s and 90s uh that's kind of how they really are and so what this is basically is to look through the through the films to kind of work out the various continuity hiccups because a lot of people seem to have have issues with that um, but first what I did was I went ahead and put together a handful of facts about the development of the of this franchise because it starts all the way back from 1984 when the when the franchise was with of all places Orion Pictures uh, the home of Robocop and among many other things and uh, at that time Marvel writers Jerry Conway and Roy Thomas uh, scripted a screenplay and this was during the time that they were gearing up for the next George Lucas epic Howard the Duck from 1986 and unfortunately nothing really happened with that but then uh, in 1990 Chris Claremont and Stan Lee started working with Caroco Pictures or Caroco it's been pronounced you know several different ways uh, but that is the that was the home of James Cameron James Cameron was looking to produce uh, the film and Catherine Bigelow uh, this is pre-point break Catherine Bigelow uh, was going to be the director and among the people that they had in mind, they had Angela Bassett uh, in mind for Storm, and Bob Hoskins as Wolverine. Yeah. Eddie Valiant himself. Yeah. Uh, then the fo- the focus wound up shifting over in 1992 to the X Men animated series, and that wound up becoming uh, a huge plus for the for the franchise. To the point where 20th Century Fox actually looked at it as a moneymaker and they decided to acquire the film rights with Lauren Shuler, Don- uh, Lauren Sh- uh, Shuler Donner, it's, she's a tough name to pronounce, um, to acquire the film rights and she hired Andrew Kevin Walker, the writer of Seven, as a screenwriter. Um, the submitted drafts, they featured characters from, uh, from the early 1960s but they also included Wolverine, they included Bolivar Trask and they included the Sentinels. So they wanted to get things going pretty quickly. Um, and then in 1996, we had Michael Chabon pitching a six-page treatment that would only introduce the main characters. The villains wouldn't even be introduced until part two. 
Um, and then around that time, that's when they had Brett Ratner and Robert Rodriguez offered the, the, the films, and both of them declined. And at that time, The Usual Suspects had come out. And Brian Singer was looking to get into a sci-fi uh, franchise. And he was actually looking at Alien Resurrection, but 20th Century Fox decided he would be a better fit for X-Men. And the more they pitched him on that, the more interested he got. And he wound up putting together a story with, uh, with himself and Tom DeSanto. And then his assistant, David Hayter, got involved. And David Hayter was very well knowledgeable in the X-Men lore. And so he was able to provide enough material that he wound up being the sole screenwriter of that first film. And as one more interesting twist, for the casting, as it all fell into place, they found their Wolverine, and it was a, it's an actor named Doug Ray Scott. And Doug Ray Scott is someone who we've mainly seen in Mission Impossible 2. Uh, he was basically going back and forth with Tom Cruise, ripping each other's faces off. So, um, And... During the time of Mission Impossible 2, the filming wound up delaying so much that Doug Ray Scott had to bow out. So all of a sudden, they're getting ready to start. They don't have a Wolverine. Fortunately, they wound up doing a screen test with an Australian actor who had just done a stage production of Oklahoma. And he wound up being their man. And of course, that was Hugh Jackman. So, of course, so before I jump into the issues with the continuity, um, I, let me just give you some quick numbers here. So the first X-Men that came out in 2000, they were given a budget of $75 million, which is understandable because at that point, the only Marvel movies that had come out were Howard the Duck, The Punisher with Dolph Lundgren, Captain America with Matt Salinger, and The Fantastic Four, which didn't even get, which didn't even get an actual release. Then in 1998, Blade came out. And then all of a sudden, it started to look at something that could, that could work as, uh, as getting a property out there. And so they wound up giving, um, giving uh, X-Men a basic budget of $75 million, and it wound up pulling in $296.3 million worldwide. And all of a sudden, Fox was like, friend, come on over to the table. And they upped their budget for X2. Gave him, a, gave him a budget of about 110-125 million dollars, and it wound up bringing in 407.7 million. So a huge jump right there. I'm not sure. Um, now, really quickly, quick show of hands. How many of you guys saw the first X-Men in theaters? I asked this yesterday. How many people? Keep the hands up. Uh, how many of you who left the theater felt satisfied at the end of it? Okay. I see, I see a lot of this, but that's all right, you know. That was really just kind of like a start of everything. And you can kind of look at the first film as almost a prologue to what would be in the second one. So uh, show of hands, how many of you saw X2 in theaters? And how many of you left that satisfied? See a much more solid, you know, up there. A couple of still like this, but, uh, but that's all right. Then um, in, after the end of X2, when we saw that little teaser of a phoenix down in the water, and we cut to black with the, uh, they even considered that their Wrath of Khan ending. They knew that they were ripping that off in, immensely, and they were, you know, they accepted that, so why not? Um, Brian was actually thinking of doing a two-parter for, for three. He was gonna do three and four as the Dark Phoenix saga. And, however, at that same time, that's when Superman came calling. And so he decided to shift all of his attention to what would eventually be Superman Returns. And he brought his two writers, Michael Doherty and Dan Harris, with him. 
and kind of left the X-Men franchise in a bit of a lurch because 20th Century Fox, instead of just saying, we'll release it when, you know, when we have the right people on hand, 20th Century Fox is well known for movies having, for, uh, for release dates being made instead of movies. And so what they did was they were scrambling for a director. They found one in a gentleman named Matthew Vaughn and started working with him and got, uh, made some progress, was able to do some, some uh, decent casting. The main cast, casting choice that they were really thrilled with was Kelsey Grammer as Hank McCoy, alias Beast. And that wound up being a very, very big positive for what would eventually be the final film on that. Vaughn did not feel comfortable really working with the schedule that was, that was given to him, so he decided to step away. He wound up eventually doing Kick-Ass. Um, but what uh, they wound up doing was they wound up handing the reins to uh, Brett Ratner. And Brett was basically someone who was looked at as a very competent director, somebody who can deliver action, and that's what they were looking for. And so they worked with uh, Zach Penn and Simon Kinberg to put together a script that, uh, that definitely should have been two movies, but was squeezed quite a bit into one that didn't even cover two hours. Uh, so, really quickly, show of hands, how many of you saw X-Men The Last Stand in theaters? And how many of you left satisfied? Yeah, I'm seeing a big drop on that one. But, apparently, it did well enough at the box office to keep the franchise going because the budget they got was $210 million, almost $100 million from what X2 got. And it wound up bringing in $460.4 million. And at that point, that's when Hugh Jackman came up to uh, 20th Century Fox and said, I got an idea about you know, bringing Wolverine to Japan. And they said, that sounds great, sounds like a good idea, we'll do that after we do the origin story, which would eventually be X-Men Origins Wolverine. Now, how many of you saw that one in theaters? And how many of you left satisfied? Didn't think so, yeah. <laughs> Thankfully, there wound up being a good uh, little about face with that. They brought Matthew Vaughn in to do a semi-reboot, but at the same time, something that would still be somewhat in the continuity. And here is where the continuity issues started to rear their heads, because um, basically what wound up happening in, at the end of First Class is we get to see how Charles Xavier gets paralyzed. Um, however, at the beginning of X-Men The Last Stand, we saw Patrick Stewart as Charles Xavier standing up and walking. And we also saw a quick shot of a, I would guess, a CGI composite of Patrick Stewart standing up and walking at the end of, of X-Men Origins Wolverine. But uh, it, it, wound up being, it wound up creating a little bit of an issue with fans. And so First Class came out. They gave it $140, $160 million, and it wound up bringing in... 353.6 million, definitely a drop, but I'm not, sure, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm alone on this, but I consider that one to be the top one in the whole franchise. Now, how many of you saw X-Men First Class in theaters? And how many of you left satisfied? Yeah, yeah, I, I'm glad to see that. That's the one that I really consider uh, a fan of myself. Um, and then two years later, that's when we got the uh, Wolverine in Japan story. And what I was surprised with this one is I thought that this was going to be a sequel to X-Men Origins Wolverine, and it was going to kind of continue his journey to eventually getting to that first X-Men movie. But instead, what they did was they moved this one to take place after X-Men The Last Stand and brought in a lot of elements from that, just enough so that way you could still follow the entire story if you only saw that one, 
but if you saw the X-Men The Last Stand, you got some extra, some extra bonus material there, um, especially with everything that he was doing with Jean Grey. Now, how many of you saw the Wolverine in theaters? How many of you left satisfied? Yeah. It felt like that, that things were, were going in a really interesting direction. And then in 2014, uh, after, after the Wolverine made 414.8 million in theaters, that's when we got X-Men Days Future Past. And that's when a lot of the different, you know, interesting continuity issues that, uh, that were coming up really came to the forefront. And we got to see a lot, you know, quite a bit of twists and turns that were going on just in that movie alone. Um, now, how many of you saw Days Future Past in theaters? How many of you left satisfied? All right, I'm still see I'm seeing some shaky, but overall, very, you know, overall good. Glad to see that. Uh, Fox was glad to see that too. They got a 200, 200 to 220 million dollar budget, primarily for the cast, and they wanted to bring in 746 million dollars. So, not a bad, not a bad jump at all. And then in 2016. In February of 2016, we got Deadpool. And what that wound up being, in turn, I consider Deadpool and Deadpool 2 kind of the oil slick in the whole continuity. They're, they're, um, the beauty of the character of Wade Wilson and Deadpool is that he is very aware of where, of where he is. He's very aware of what kind of movie he's in, and he plays that up really, really well. And so... That is its own little thing, but at the same time, it's something that um, that has enough of X-Men lore, so that way those who have been following it can definitely keep up. Now, how many saw Deadpool in theaters? And how many left satisfied? Yeah, that was a big one. And Deadpool was given a budget of only $58 million, and it left with $782.6 million. So... All of a sudden, Deadpool became Fox's new friend. At the same time, that same year, we got X-Men Apocalypse. And that one was another interesting little twist in the continuity. Because now all of a sudden, we got to see what happens to the team after the events of Days of Future Past. And the awakening of Apocalypse, who would basically kind of sit around for a little while and watch TV. Um, so, show of hands, how many of you saw X-Men Apocalypse in theaters? How many of you left satisfied? Yeah, 2016 was really interesting because we wound up getting hit with a whole lot of franchises at the same time that year. Not only did we get Deadpool, but we also got Batman v Superman. We got Captain America: Civil War. We got uh, we got X Men: Apocalypse. Later on in the year, we would get Rogue One, Star Wars story. So there was a whole lot of a whole lot to be had, and Doctor Strange. You know, the same year. So 2016 was a very very busy year for for this genre. Um, at the same time, it brought in it, uh, the cost was 178, and it still brought in 543.9 million. Um, so then we had the supposed finale of the X-Men franchise, and that would be Logan, because the success of Deadpool coerced uh, James Mangold and Hugh Jackman to petition to make Logan an R-rated film and go all out with it as much as possible to really put the exclamation point on Hugh Jackman's run in this character. And they agreed. They gave him a condensed budget. They gave it uh, 97 to $127 million, but they were rewarded with $619.2 million. Now, how many of you saw Logan in theaters? How many of you left satisfied? Yeah? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then we had Deadpool 2 coming out, and which you know basically just kind of 
added on a little little extra to Deadpool's mythology, really kind of built on it, and he had some fun. He definitely delivered on the promise that he gave at the end credit stinger. They definitely brought in Cable and had a, a lot of fun with that. So, how many of you saw Deadpool 2 in theaters? How many of you guys left satisfied? Yeah? Brought, uh, budget for that one was only 110, but it brought in 785 million. And then, we thought that that was the end of it. Um, however, at that time, around 2018, 2019, that's when talk started going on between, uh, between 20th Century Fox and Disney, for Disney to basically acquire 20th Century Fox. And while they were doing that, they were also doing one last shot at the X-Men franchise because Simon Kinberg, who was behind the screenplays for Days of Future Past and Apocalypse, wanted to do Dark Phoenix right. And so what we got was Dark Phoenix. And after many different delays and an incredible drop in enthusiasm from the trailers, uh, by the time that, uh, that Dark Phoenix came out, the sale was already underway. And so with a $200 million budget of Dark Phoenix, it grossed worldwide $252 million. Basically what Dark Phoenix was is this was the party after the cool kids had already left. And so, how many of you saw Dark Phoenix in theaters? I'm curious. And how many of you left satisfied? Yeah. There, I personally wound up not seeing it until after, un, until, until it came out on DVD. And I thought that there was enough there to recommend, but I also feel like Simon Kinberg kind of overcorrected himself to the point where he kind of left the Dark Phoenix itself very muddled. Um, I felt like he was, he was trying to make Jean Grey a threat before getting the Phoenix Entity, and then when she got it, it just felt so, like, muddled. It was just like, pick one. I actually, I may be in the minority, but I kind of prefer the handling of Phoenix and The Last Stand more. Um, so, now, throughout all these years, I've been, like, a big fan of this franchise. Um, I saw the first one and the second one three times within one week and took my dad to see it, you know, like for, uh, for both of them the third time I saw it. And that wound up being like our Father's Day thing for five out of, the, um, out of, out of all these movies. We saw X-Men, X2, um, X-Men First Class, Days of Future Past, and Apocalypse. We did like a whole Father's Day weekend thing for each of them. And so I have been really, I would consider myself sort of a, sort of a film franchise, maybe apologist, you know, depending on the different thing, the different, the, the amount of slack that I'll give it uh, with a lot of different things. And so what I came up with was my, you know, my own way of figuring out how to really kind of work with this continuity. And the things that I put in were to not try to justify the movie issues with the comics because both are separate. Um, I wanted to see which clues are shown that they provide to show what, uh, what they can, what they can say in terms of fixing any sort of continuity issues, and they are shown in the movie's order of release. Um, you also, I also concluded that you have to bring your own theories to this. So my own theory that I'm sharing, it is you know, my own theory. You guys can take it as you will. If you'll accept it, fantastic. If not, no worries. I didn't write these movies. So I am just kind of bringing what I have to the table on that. Um, and I didn't want to just refer to it as, eh, multiverse because I felt like that was a cop-out. So, especially because the timeline doesn't really get too messed up until we get to Days of Future Past. And I also wanted to take X-Men Origins Wolverine completely out of continuity, which they wound up doing themselves 
with what happened in first class and days future past. So we didn't see him hanging out with with um, with Victor. Um, so I figured just go ahead and take that one out. Just put it over here as a one shot non-canon story and just leave it at that. So the way I looked at it, I saw it as two different things. I saw it as the Wolverine timeline, which is X-Men 1, uh, 1 X-Men 2, X-Men 3. Then you got the Wolverine, Days Future Past, and Logan. And we have, as the Xavier timeline, we have First Class, Days Future Past, kind of meeting in the middle. And then we have Apocalypse and Dark Phoenix. So it basically creates one big X. Um, the Deadpool timeline, like I said, he's the oil slick in the whole thing. So, and just the just because of the line McAvoy or Stewart these timelines are so confusing um, so one of the issues that a lot of people had with 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 uh, these films is with Charles Xavier how is he shot in first class when he can walk in X3 and my interpretation of it is because what we saw in that little flashback was how Charles himself wishes to see it Charles is vain he always has been we see that in days in first class we see him as someone who refuses to let his, to cut his hair, and we only see that at the end of Apocalypse, that how his hair was lost at the end of that. Um, so he doesn't even want to think of that wheelchair, because we see that in Days Future Past, with the door shut, just kind of keeping there, and the fact that he would give up his own powers in order to walk again. So when he goes into someone's visions, like he did in Senator Kelly's visions in uh, the first X-Men, the first thing that we see that shows that he is in someone else's head and he's not in reality is he stands up when he's in his wheelchair. And so we get to see that there and we also see it in X2 when he looks down at his feet and smiling, seeing that he's standing up. And then he realizes that Jason Stryker is messing with his head. So what we're seeing with Jean as a young girl is we have Charles thinking back on it. And because of that, so in reality, that wheelchair is there. So again, that's my theory on how that is. And the other thing that, were, that, uh, that was going on, there were three lines that were in those, in those movies that really stick out for me. They might stick out for you, but you have, he helped me build it, which is what Charles says to, about uh, Magneto and Cerebro, saying that he helped me build it. Um, we have Magneto getting out of the car with Xavier at the beginning of, X, of X-Men The Last Stand, and he says, I still don't know why I'm here. And we have the moment in Days of Future Past where their jet is, is about to crash, where Charles is telling Eric, you abandoned me. So the way I looked at it is this. Charles Xavier depart. Charles and Eric, they departed at the end of the Cuban Missile Crisis in X-Men First Class, which was October 16th through the 29th of 1962. The Kennedy assass assassination that Eric was eventually imprisoned for <coughs> happened in November 22nd, 1963. So that gave Eric one year before he would try to save JFK, as he said in Days of Future Past. So they got one year to complete the setup of moving, getting Cerebro set up down in the mansion and also building out those, those halls. Considering how Magneto is with, with manipulating metal, one year is not so bad, especially considering how he basically rebuilt the whole mansion at the end of Apocalypse. So I'll give them that. Um, Eric would still be in prison while Mystique was captured and tortured in 1973 in that original timeline that, they, that Xavier talks about at the beginning of Days of Future Past. During that time, right after she kills Trask at the Paris Accords, that's when 
he, uh, that's when she's tortured, that's when she is basically, they discover how those sentinels can be, can be used and adapt to all the mutants. Um, so during that time, her torture would definitely embitter Eric, even more to the point where he and Charles would still would not see eye to eye, but because of their history, they would still remain friends. Um, what I was thinking before was that Mystique could, in that original timeline, Mystique could possibly be the one to break Xavier, out, uh, to break Eric out of that prison. But I also think that Charles would do it because he would learn that, Ken that he was trying to save Kennedy instead of trying to assassinate him. And so that would explain why they were basically together when Charles first recruited Gene in X-Men for uh, The Last Stand. So that's why you have Eric saying, I still don't know why I'm here. At the end of Days of Future Past, however, Eric goes off on his own and he starts his life over, he goes on the run. So that leaves Charles to recruit Gene alone as you see him in Dark Phoenix. So then you have the Charles and Mystique connection that, uh, that a lot of people were kind of up in arms about. And a big connection that I believe would still be there because Mystique's sabotage of Cerebro in the first X-Men, it only incapacitates Charles, it doesn't kill him. If she was feeling really bitter and hateful toward him, then she, she would have done something to really, to really damage him. But then we have the Wolverine issues, and one of the things that a lot of people were wondering was why does he have his metal claws in Days of Future Past when he lost them in the Wolverine? And the only thing I can say is look who he was with for two after the two years. Two years after the events of the Wolverine, that's when he sees Magneto again, and he's recruited to eventually join the group off on the Sentinels. Uh, against the Sentinels. So, with that in mind, he would definitely need more than Bone Claws. So, it was, it's very easy to assume that Magneto basically gave him an upgrade. Um, and then, people look at the timeline in Logan. And my theory, again, is uh, Logan would continue on after the... That, um, that one continues on after the Days of Future Past ending. That Back to the Future ending that they get. And... Hank said something really interesting in Days of Future Past. He says that time has a way of snapping back, which means that Scott, Gene, and everyone else should have stayed dead, which means that those psychic seizures that Charles has in Logan, they were the ones that basically killed everyone that was there. Because, and we see Charles giving, showing a lot of guilt right at that moment when he is killed by, uh, by the X-24. Um, so... The way I see it is that he killed them and, and wound up actually doing his part in making mutankind an endangered species, which is where Logan picks up. So those, that's my dissertation to kind of smooth out, you know, like any sort of continuity issues. But I love to hear from you guys. You know, like I'd love to hear, you know, like, am I full of shit? Am I, am, am I too much of an apologist? Or, you know, like, or does this kind of make sense based on what was given? So I kind of like to open the floor. Yes, sir. The only one that I'm a little bit skeptical on is Magneto, like re-adamantiuming Wolverine skeleton. Because how exactly would he do that? My my theory is that um, be, he can. He's already shown that he can manipulate it. So my thoughts is he would basically just take some of it and just try to um, basically smooth it out. Um, basically just try to take whatever, whatever he can get from there and, and add it to him. That was my, that was my only, you know, again, that, that was my only theory based on what we have. 
Obviously, it's a rare material, but it's already in Logan himself. So my thoughts is he would at least try to take whatever he could to try to get those to try to get those claws back in working order. So sort of like he still had some like uh, residue left over. Yeah. Oh yeah, because he still has the full adamantium skeleton in there, so he can very easily just kind of because we we see that that he can still manipulate it because you know like when he goes ahead and pulls out the bone claws when he sees when he uh, when he sees um, uh, Eric over at the airport he can't stab him Magneto is keeping him from moving forward yeah. so that's that adamantium is still is still very much in there the only things that really got taken away were the claws. Oh yeah. Anyone else? Yes. Sir. Where does New Mutants fit in? Couldn't tell you. <laughs> that I couldn't tell you because, like, they um, yeah, that was that was something that I still have have yet to actually like sit down and watch myself. Um, I would like to, um, but at the same time, like everything that I'm hearing, apparently I'm not missing much. And there was a whole lot of back and forth that was going on behind the scenes and. That one, I'm not even sure. Like, if uh, if Disney really got involved with any of the any of the edits themselves, because um, I know that with Dark Phoenix, that was the last one that was released under the 20th Century Fox original original um, you know, people that were there, original board. So um, I look at New Mutants as something that they brought in and just figured, like, and eh, we'll just go ahead and do this. So since they had control over it at that point, that's you know that's something that I just kind of look at. What I'm, you know, like what really interests me is just how 20th Century Fox basically handled this whole this whole franchise. I'd like to hear your thoughts about the cure that Magneto got at the end of X3. The last stand. Yeah. He got them back by the end of I want to say the Wolverine. He actually he actually got it back. You see, like it's starting to come back at the end of the last stand um, because um, they. Um, the last stand was definitely like um, they definitely pulled their punches on that one. You know, yes, they wound up, you know, like yeah, they wound up killing Scott, they wound up killing Gene, and they decimated Charles. But you know, like the last thing that you see in that um, in at uh, at the very end of the last stand is you see Eric sitting at a table in a um, at a park with a chessboard right there. And he just kind of gives himself like this weird look, wondering like, huh, what's, what's going on here? And he holds up his hand, and one of the chess pieces that's metal starts to move just the tiniest little bit before it cuts the credits, showing that that, that cure that they gave was temporary. It was something that was manufactured and something that was not going to have a permanent hold on, on things. And so you... Put that in with the end credit stinger at the very end, where Moira is visited by um, by the the uh, the incapacitated body that she was looking after. That all of a sudden looked over to her, to her and in Charles Xavier's voice said, "Hello, Moira," uh, showing that Charles was able to put his consciousness into that other body that he knew of because of the little tease we saw uh, very early on in that film. Yes. How's it in his face? How's it in space? No, how's it his face? When oh, how's it in his face? Back into the body. That is, um, is it well, or is it? I, th I think that was, I mean, Charles is, has been known as like the most powerful mutant on the planet. So, and my understanding is that that was, um, I think 
you know, based on what, what they were saying, like behind the scenes, is that that was actually his brother. So um, I'll go ahead and accept that <laughs> and run with it. Yes? I thought his brother was supposed to be Juggernaut. <laughs> supposed to be. But, you know, like, but we, don't, we don't see any sort of uh, mention of that in The Last Stand. So even though it's, I know you said Deadpool is kind of like the oil slick. Yeah. Um, but what do you think of Juggernaut in X-Men 3 versus Deadpool 2? Do you think they're still supposed to be the same guy or? I think with, uh, with, with Deadpool 2, I put that, um, I would basically just say that if that was going to be in any continuity, it would be in the James McAvoy. Michael Fassbender, first class continuity, because we see like little, we see a quick glimpse of them in Deadpool 2, and we also see, uh, we see a much more enhanced version of Colossus in that one, the same year that, uh, the same year that, that the whole mansion blows up, um, but at the same time, like, uh, Deadpool and Deadpool 2 take place much more closer to our present time. So the, the mention of that Negasonic Teenage Warhead gives in um, in the first Deadpool about how the mansion always blows up, she's referencing X Men Apocalypse, which hadn't even come out yet. So it was a nice little teaser for that. Yes. Do they bring any of these people back for the MCU or start fresh? I wish they did. You know, like there was a before I'd seen Dark Phoenix, I had a theory, and this was this was something that I would hope would happen. It wound up not happening, um, but I thought it was going to be it was going to be a lot of fun. But um, whatever the events of Dark Phoenix would be, obviously they'd be cataclysmic in some way. Um, but what I wanted to see was an end credit stinger where Charles Xavier is being told by someone, "We understand uh, everything that you've done for mutant kind, but for your own safety and for the safety of your race, maybe it's time that you all disappear for a while." And the camera pans over and it sees that he's talking to Nick Fury. And at this point, you know, like Nick may or may not have gotten his eye patch, may or may not have gotten the entanglement in Captain Marvel that he had. Um, but since that one does take place in the 90s, Dark Phoenix does, it would be around the same time. And so, which uh, Charles would basically say, you know, like, I understand, and would use Cerebro in order to basically kind of wipe the minds of everyone from mutant kind and just say that, you know, like, if you need us, you know, we'll, we'll be there cut to black and it would say the X-Men will return and there you go. You have a lead-in for the MCU. And the fun part about that is that the, because of that timeline, Wolverine is still alive over there because we see him in as Weapon X in X-Men Apocalypse. And we see him being given a sense of peace by Jean Grey when she kind of calms his mind. But he's still out there. For all we know, he is still, he, he would have found his way over to the X-Men at that time. So he could, as, you know, Hugh Jackman as Wolverine could wind up being involved in the MCU if that happened. Based on everything that happened throughout Dark Phoenix, that is very likely not going to be the case. Knowing Marvel, they would probably just want to kind of start over, but at least be able to do it without dropping another origin story of any sort. Especially nothing like X-Men Origins Wolverine. So. <laughs> yes? Um, that, that could that could wind up being something that they that they do. It's Marvel, so they would want to they want to do something that at least echoes 
the comics, if not be completely faithful to them. Because what I was thinking is you talked about like maybe it's, you guys disappear for a while. Oh, on the... Used, yeah, they could have used that and made some kind of space station for them based off that. Good, good. Yeah, you never know. You know, like that's... The way things the way things go with the MCU, like they they go in so many you know unique directions that you never think would work, but they wind up doing. They wind up doing so. Um, one of my favorite tweets that I ever saw was from 2014, saying, "Warner Brothers DC, we still don't know how to do Wonder Woman right. Marvel Disney, here's a raccoon with a machine gun." So, <laughs> and there you go. <laughs> yes. Uh, this is kind of a timeline question, kind of a story question. Maybe sure. About Dark Phoenix, and I thought I was kind of shocked in Dark Phoenix. I felt like they leaned into Xavier as abuser quite a bit, and that like I, I thought it was kind of out of nowhere. And yeah. Maybe more of like trying to make a social point, less of a story point. Like it didn't seem like it grew. The interactions in Dark Phoenix between Xavier and the other characters did not seem to match up. He, def he, he did seem definitely much more kind of, I mean, that, that kind of plays into his ego. And that's something that we do see a lot of in, through, throughout, these, throughout these films. We don't see it quite as much in Apocalypse, but we definitely see it in First Class and Days of Future Past. Um, and, yeah, we see it. You know, and he like, lashes into him. And rightfully so. And rightfully so, because Charles was wrong the way that he, that he handled that. You know, like, um, I understood why, but at the same time, you know, like, the way that he did it, it... Um, it didn't come off. It didn't come off right. You know, which if you're gonna if you're gonna have you're gonna have these these sort of characters and everything going through these sort of changes and having these having these arcs. I was glad to see it because I like the fact that he's as imperfect as he is. Um, but he definitely he definitely made you know made some mistakes you know with that. Um, personally, like I, I thought that it was like I said before, just like the way that they handled Phoenix itself. By bringing in the aliens, I thought it was very clumsy. Um, by you know, by talking about how the Phoenix entity destroyed a whole star system that we never see, and introducing these characters that we could really care maybe one little iota about, um, I felt that was that was a miss. I felt that there was enough there to to give it you know some sort of a, a recommend, but definitely a weaker one. Um, but like I said, I feel like they handled like they handled Phoenix better in The Last Stand by having it something that's always been inside her and something that has the potential to lash out at any given moment. And the evolution of that, from using Cerebro to, that basically unlocked it, and then starting to crack in X2, and then going full force in X3, I thought it was a very good evolution there. Um, but the way that it was handled in Dark Phoenix definitely could have been better. Now yes. Oh, yeah. Do you think with him using Cerebral so much to where your theory can be played as well, mm -hmm. Dre's seizures are the ones that cause the I definitely think that it, it uh, definitely helps because that really is like one huge amplifier. And when you have someone as powerful as he is, putting in that amplification... X2, that's right. Yeah, yeah, that, that's, yeah, exactly. Like, that's the fact that that's already been something that almost succeeded yeah. in, that, in that same vein. Like, there were, you know, there were mutants all around the world that were falling in pain. So it very much could have been that moment that, uh, that he had one of, his, one of his seizures 
and he couldn't stop himself. So yeah, I think that's that's a, that's a terrific point right there. Yes. So what do you think about the idea that he has to they they, they call it Professor X? They have to take him off the table every movie because he's too powerful. Every movie he's sidelined in some way. Yeah, uh, which I understood. You know, like that was um, that was. That's, that's something you have to do for drama. You have to, if you, if you have like the most powerful mutant on your side, and, but at the same time, like he himself has been like very much holding back on doing what he can do. Um, what he did with uh, the way that he handled um, Mystique, he very well could have stopped her you know, forcefully into, into dropping the gun, but she had to be the one to make the choice. And the fact that he allowed her to do that and that's when all of a sudden everything, everything wound up changing because she made that different choice that set her on this different path, which what I appreciated with, uh, with, X-Men, with X-Men Apocalypse because one of the things that she was doing was she was basically doing a cash and release when it came to mutants. She got them out of, out of danger, but then dropped them off somewhere else and say like, okay, you're on your own and just was able to go about as much as she could. She did that with, with Nightcrawler and she did that with Wolverine. Because eventually, Stryker's team wound up finding him. So, do we have any uh, any other questions? Any other statements? You, um, I like the way you explained it. I had a hard time with Logan because I'm a Wolverine fan and I was not prepared for him to die at all. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm still mad about that. Oh yeah. <laughs> so I like how you explained it because I, I I couldn't talk to anybody who could say, well, what is what was what was going on with Xavier and. And everything, and I kept trying to get it in the timeline. I'm like, this is not making any sense to me. So your your explanation explained it a lot better. Oh, thank you, thank you. The one thing, the one thing I would have done differently with with Logan, two things. I would have not shown the date of uh, of. I would have not talked about the date being 2029, because I felt like that was the whole the the whole time the whole all the movies for the Wolverine timeline. They always say the not too distant future, the Sunday AD. And, um, and, but, uh, so to have a definite date on that, what saying 2029, I felt they could have done, they could have done a little bit better job, just kind of fuzzing that up a little bit or just say like, Oh, this is the year 2000 and then cuts to something else. Um, just something to just kind of show that the timeline is still very ambiguous. Um, and the only other thing I would have done differently, and this is just from a personal standpoint, I would not have ended the movie with the man comes around by Johnny Cash. Um, as much as I love that song, I feel like Dawn of the Dead did a, a really good job with that, and that's all I was thinking of when I was <laughs> listening to that. I would have chosen a much more somber piece. I would have chosen Hurt, um, his cover of Hurt uh, from Nine Inch Nails. I feel like that would have that fits Wolverine a lot better. I hurt myself today to see if I still feel. Um, other than that, I, I absolutely love that movie. Yes. They did use that one for the trailers. So. They did. They did, yeah. That's why I expected to, to see that in the end credits. Well, to argue against, argue in favor of doing an actual date, the yeah. reason I think it was actually a good idea is because you had Xavier there, and knowing how old he was was True. actually important to understanding the movie. I'll give you that. I'll, I'll definitely give you that because he he had to get you know he he definitely had to show him getting older because he's not you know Logan may live forever. But Xavier is still a man and will age and will eventually die on his own. And the whole movie is pre... The, pr- the premise of the movie is based on Xavier basically 
losing it due to old age. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. I'll give you, I'll definitely, you know, uh, give you guys that. Um, so we're about to wrap up, but what I'd like to do is I would love you guys to grab your tickets because I have a couple of things I'd like to raffle off for you. If any, so I have, okay, all right. So I have two books that I've written here. Uh, this one here, Excelsior, this is part one of a uh, young adult sci-fi trilogy. And this one here from Parts Unknown is a complete five-part serial. It's a, uh, a sci-fi wrestling uh, serial. And uh, both of these, you know, like I am raffling off to some lucky, two lucky winners. So, first winner is 400254. So a couple of people get up. So if that's not, I'll go ahead and re pick. How about 400246? All right, awesome. There you go. Feel free to take a look at these. Pick which one you'd like. I'll go ahead and sign that for you as well. Um, And our second winner, 400243. All right. All right, excellent. You go with that one? Awesome. All right. guys I want to say thank you guys so much for coming out I you know hope you guys enjoyed the um, enjoyed it you know it's my little my little TED talk here so <laughs> uh, I appreciate it thank you guys